Social justice means applying the law equally to all people, but in practice, that doesn't always happen. I'm John Gonzalez. I'm here with my law partner, Jack Derora. We practice law, we seek social justice, and on this show, we reveal the conflict between the two. For a while, it was just the two of us, just us talking in the office over a cup of coffee about social justice. But today we have a couple gents who will help further explore the subject. We have Michael Wilkos, who's a vice president with the Franklin County United Way Agency. And we have Dwayne Casares, executive director for directions uh, for youth and families. Welcome, gentlemen. Um, I know a uh, guy that is disabled. He's on Social Security income, so fixed income. And he's looking for housing in the Westerville area, and he can't buy or rent. It's just out of his price range. And um, the areas he can't afford, he tells me he's frankly afraid to live there. Uh, Michael, am I to conclude that low-income or fixed-income people tend to congregate in certain areas of the city? There's always been a pattern in American cities where you have high opportunity places and low opportunity places. But I want to first kind of set the context for why this individual's having such a hard time finding housing that matches their income. You know, once every 10 years, we get a great opportunity to get a, a snapshot look at our city. And the 2020 census data recently came out. And what we learned from that is it was the largest numeric increase in the city of Columbus's history. It was the uh, largest increase in growth for Franklin County since the 1950s. And we have been, believe it or not, underbuilding housing for the rest of the last decade. Uh, about 5,000 units short every single year. And over the course of a decade, what that means is we've really underbuilt by about 50,000 housing units. So what people have been experiencing are rents and home values have been increasing faster than people's incomes. That's happening because there's more and more competition. Whether you are in a place like Westerville or you are in a low-income community where housing prices and rents have always been low, everybody is starting to experience that, that increase in uh, housing competition. So we have a significant issue just like the rest of the country where housing costs continue to jump and they are jumping faster than inflation. We're seeing home prices jumping 12, 13, and 14% a year, which is considerably faster than a one to 3% increase in people's incomes. So I think it's important for us to just set the stage of what's happening in Westerville is happening to people regardless of their ability and regardless if they're in a high opportunity place like Westerville, a moderate place like Northland or say a low opportunity neighborhood like Linden. Dwayne, uh, I know that one of the areas that you're always concerned about is Kimberly Parkway, which is a almost across the board, low income part of the city. Now, that's not subject to the gentrification that German Village saw. There's no new money going in there, but right. Even so, there's still a heck of a housing problem there, isn't there? And if so, if I'm right about that, describe it. Yeah, it's not the most attractive area, I guess, for a gentrification process, just because there's not a whole lot of single parent or single uh, households there, or even duplexes. A lot of it is all uh, very, very large apartment complexes. So, um, but yeah, housing is still a problem there. I, actually, Kimberly Parkway was number one in evictions. Um, and when you look at that, and you look at it from from at least our standpoint, when you look at it from a, a social standpoint, 
that means kids are being moved and the transitional nature of our kids does not help anybody. It's difficult from a schooling standpoint. It's difficult just from a community culture standpoint. Um, And that escalated to a point, well, this is pre-pandemic when we put in a few few stops about stopping people from being evicted. Um, But this has continued to be a problem. Tell me about um, transition, kids moving around. Because I remember when George W. Bush came to Columbus when he was in office and he went to some school in Sullivan. And the principal said, well, you know, I've got kids. Sometimes they're here for two weeks. Sometimes they're here for two Mm -hmm. months. I never knew about that, that it was so transit what's it like in kimberly well it's it's the way it is in really a lot of low-income areas i'll tell you what our our major focus of our organization is outreach counseling so our therapists go in the homes in the school in the community so we're very much aware of when they do move one of the things that end up happening is um when schools start we have a lot of contracts with schools they can't even locate where the kids are so sometimes we lose them they lose them so uh and so Kimberly is no different than others. And for the listeners who aren't aware of it, Kimberly Parkway is like in the old Eastland Mall. I always tell people the Eastland Mall area. Uh, everybody knows that then because uh, um, Eastland Mall used to be a, a thriving mall. When I first moved to Columbus in, in late 70s, those were the theaters that my wife and I went to. That was well, date night. You went to those theaters because they were the best in Columbus. Um, yeah, that's not the case anymore. Uh, but that is the area where it's at. When you look at cities, though, um, I'm thinking again about Westerville or maybe even uh, Whitehall, uh, there's no place to build more homes. So it's not a matter of building uh, homes for people to uh, rent or own. Uh, What else can be done in those cities to address these problems? Well, let's first set the record um, straight with some data about what has been happening with regard to that. So back to this uh, concept of underbuilding, which, by the way, is something that a lot of people haven't wrapped their heads around because you see a lot of construction. Uh, And so I often hear people say things like, who's going to live in all this stuff I see under construction? Because now we see construction in the suburbs, you know, in in existing older neighborhoods, and we certainly see it in the downtown area. Uh, So... Whitehall, by the way, just experienced population growth for the first time after 50 years of population loss. Whitehall grew by over 11% in the past decade. And you do not see housing construction happening in Whitehall. If you look at Northland, which is another really great uh, example, Northland grew by 15.4%, which means it grew faster than the city of Columbus and Franklin County. It added nearly 14,000 additional people in the greater Northland area, and it only added 474 housing units during that period of time. For many decades, we have been experiencing fewer and fewer people living in the typical American household, whether that's a single family home or an apartment, that trend stopped and reversed itself. It has reversed itself in places like Whitehall and Northland because these are the places that had very modestly priced homes. And what we are learning anecdotally, because you don't get this directly from the census, is that people are starting to live doubled up. You have young people who might have moved out of mom and dad's home younger in life. They can't afford to do that because apartments are more expensive. We're also seeing the demographic shift in places like Northland 
and Whitehall in the Kimberly Parkway area of Eastland Mall, where you are seeing new American families, which tend to have larger families. So as maybe a single individual who might have been living in one of those two-bedroom apartments by Eastland, they maybe have moved out as they think the neighborhood no longer meets the expectations that single person who might be working full-time, and they get replaced by a family of four or five that's a new American family who's actually earning less as their household income than the single person that they represent. And so, you know, what Dwayne's experiencing with his organization is this suburban environment that is now representative of the challenges of families that are low income, that have lots of children, you know, people who are working, but they're working in marginal employment, uh, or they're working multiple jobs, and they're just not uh, able to be as present in the home as maybe they'd like. Yeah, there's there's five large uh, West African groups in the Kimberly Parkway area, so and, and many of them do have very large homes. Um, the only thing I would add to that is Latinos have always lived with each other. So we, uh, <laughs> I grew up in a three-bedroom household, and there were 10 of us. Um, and this was not uncommon, not only in my community, but uh, uh, amongst my relatives. So, um. I read an article. I don't know if I read an article in the dispatch, heard a TED Talk, but there was this general direction of we've got a zoning system that doesn't work. You're nodding your head like you know where I'm going with this. Tell us about the problems with zoning, how that contributes to a housing problem. So the city of Columbus is in the throes of rewriting its zoning code. The zoning code that we currently have as a city was written 70 years ago. Every piece of it has been rewritten over the years, but it's been done so in not a comprehensive and strategic way. If you look at the typical American city, which we are in many ways, we're not typical for Ohio, we're not typical for the Midwest because 90% of all of the population growth in the state of Ohio over the last 10 years was in Columbus and its suburbs. Um, But one of the things that we're seeing is that the American household is changing demographically much more quickly than the stuff we're building. Uh, Too often we are building, you know, single family homes that are three and four bedroom homes with uh, uh, two and a half to three and a half baths. Uh, And the growth of the American household tends to be seniors that are living independently, young people that are starting off, a single parent maybe with school aged children, and the housing the diversity of the housing stock no longer looks like the diversity of the American household. The zoning code needs to be written, rewritten to respond to those changes, and I'll give a very specific example. In most urban Columbus neighborhoods, we have single-family homes with detached garages. It used to be you could have an apartment above that garage that often would be a family member. You know, it could be a grandparent, it could be an aunt or an uncle. They could provide childcare and other kinds of wonderful benefits to have an intergenerational family uh, living on that same property. That, what we call an accessory dwelling unit or the carriage house, the apartment above the garage, that's an illegal building type. All across the city, people are building them, but if you want to do it, there's an example of one near me. I live in Wineland Park, just a block away from Duane's uh, headquarters offices for Directions Youth and Families. This is a neighborhood near the Ohio State University, North Forth and Summit, just north of the Short North and Italian Village. And if you want to build a detached garage with an apartment above it, one of my neighbors needed to get nine variances to make that happen. Yet this is a historical precedent. They exist in our city. They exist in this neighborhood. The Civic Association supports it. The Area Commission supports it. City staff support it. But you need nine variances to get it done. The reason why we're redoing the zoning code is so we can allow builders 
and developers to build the housing typology that the people of Columbus, not only of the future, but people of Columbus of the present need. Supportive housing, cooperative housing, people who want to maybe share some of the elements of living communally, uh, but maybe want to have private space. A lot of these things which would reflect uh, greater diversity are just not allowed in the current code. Is the reason for that the perception that that might bring down values, the, 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 the home value? I could see in a carriage house that used to be for family now being rented out to strangers. And if that's occurring throughout the neighborhood, I think there's a perception out there that people who rent don't take care as well as people who own. Um, so I'm, I'm just trying to think of the mentality as to why that is still a part of our zoning code. So some of the realities of the contemporary zoning code are really rooted in when zoning codes became uh, really organized and had clear delineation and demarcation between land use and land use type. So keep in mind, zoning started here in Ohio, right? Ambler versus Euclid Realty. Um, and it really wanted to separate land uses so people weren't living next to factories and people weren't living next to obnoxious uses and people could live, uh, you know, safe, decent, and sanitary housing. In that effort to provide that separation of uses, all of a sudden it was like all of this is to be single family and this is supposed to be apartments. So back to the example of having an accessory dwelling unit, the great opportunity here is you can feel pretty confident that apartment, even if it is rented to a stranger that's in the backyard of someone's home, they're going to be making certain that that person is adhering to the lease, that they are treating the neighborhood and they're doing all of the things because, you know, they're right there with the homeowner. Uh, it also provides the homeowner the opportunity for additional revenue, right, so that they could be more stable in their own ability to continue to own that home. I think some of it is just resistance to change. <clears throat> Um, and we do have in Columbus and other cities, there is a resistance to density. Uh, people think density brings traffic. Uh, what I would like to suggest for folks that are listening is that density is going to be very important. If our region adds another million people in the next 30 years, I would rather have that growth happen near bus lines, near services, near in existing communities. And I'd like to save some of the most beautiful and productive farmland in the world that sits just outside 270. When, when we're thinking about this um, this issue, and I think about affordable rentals, uh, I live on the north uh, end of, uh, of Columbus in the suburbs. A lot of the condo associations that are being built have provisions, and I think Jack knows this, that uh, you have to be an owner to live there. And to be an owner, you can't be a corporation, an LLC. You have to be a person, which basically to me means you're not going to be able to rent those units out. Uh, to me, that's discrimination against a certain type of person, possibly. But again, I think the justification for that is, is that this will increase or preserve the value of our condominium association. And so those are written in by private individuals. Our friend Don Kenny has many, many condo associations he built on the North End with those provisions oh, sure. in those deeds. Let's change the, uh, I think that's a, 
Sorry, Michael, it sounds like you want to say something. Yeah, no, just, you know, th this is not a metropolitan market where there is a large condominium base. So recognizing all of those things to be true with regard to condominiums, um, I think one of the more critical issues is there's large portions of our region that just multifamily housing in general and multifamily rental housing and apartment complexes are often zoned out of that region. Um, you know, Columbus is in a very unique situation because the city of Columbus, which is 220 square miles, it stretches into 11 different county or school districts. It's in three different counties. There is a much more even distribution of multifamily housing across the metropolitan region because Columbus's annexation policy over the last seven years, has, 70 years, has been relatively aggressive. What that means is you can drive down places like Bethel and Sawmill Road, which is in the city of Columbus, but in the Dublin School District, and you can find tax credit apartment complexes there that provide access for, you know, what we would consider those folks who are working, working full time, but they don't earn enough money to afford the open market. So they can live in an apartment complex that looks just like any other apartment complex on Sawmill Road, but it does come with an income restriction or an income cap. So it supports working families, and then they also have access to a high quality school like Dublin. And there's lots of environments um, here in Central Ohio, where we're seeing places like in the Westerville schools, Gahanna schools, Dublin, Hilliard, which are portions of the city of Columbus, which are zoned for multifamily, but fall into those suburban school districts. And this is a, an advantage that we have. And I, I think we need to focus uh, more of our attention on whether or not enough of our metropolitan region is zoned to support higher density multifamily. I think the condominium solution is an important one, but even if it were there, it's not going to uh, increase significantly with the number of units, given that this it really isn't a strong condo town. And, and Michael, that since some communities that's zoned out of having that, does that then restrict certain people from certain communities? In a sense, you're not going to be able to afford to go there because they're not going to build affordable housing that is more condominium style that would be something that I could actually fit into. It certainly does. And, you know, there's no faulting any particular community which wants to ensure its financial security long term. And they want to support a housing typology where the revenue stream and taxes are going to support the demand for services. And so for a lot of these smaller communities, you know, dense apartment complexes just don't do that. They uh, can support children for the school system. Uh, there's lots of people and people, you know, drive on roads and they need services and maybe the revenue stream. So they favor single family homes and often larger single family homes on large lot sizes. So we get some communities that are very diverse racially and ethnically, like Dublin and New Albany, but they are not particularly diverse when it comes to uh, the housing typology or the price points that are within those particular communities. Let me change the direction of the conversation a little. We've been focused on housing, which is incredibly important. But there's a lot more that goes into a thriving city, things we would refer to generically as resources. And places like Kimberly Parkway and maybe northern Columbus or where I live, just north of Upper Arlington, vast differences. Talk to me about that, Dwayne. Yeah, you know, some of it is just even just basic resources. When we first looked at Kimberly, uh, we we were gifted this property under the condition we would do something to help that community. So we have operated after school and summer programs, so that was our intention. Um, but we were filled up in two days, and then we, we uh, 
split everything in shifts. We got filled up in two more days, and we rented a place down the street, and we were, we were filled up by the end of the week. We had the open house, and the principal of the middle school there came and said, oh, my gosh, there's nothing out here, Dwayne. We can have you filled up in no time. I said, there's no more room at this end. We knew then, and we've been turning let me, st- let me stop you for a second. When you said you filled up, I mean, what what were, what service were you providing? So we're going to provide after school and summer programming. Okay. So we do it. It's uh, leadership. It it is uh, uh, homework help and uh, computer help. It is uh, we have dance, we have music, we have fitness, we have um, the arts. So it's things just to enrich kids. Leadership okay. development classes. Um, we've been very effective with that at Ohio Avenue. Actually, we have sent seven kids to college on music scholarships in the last three years. So that doesn't happen in that area so we were very confident in the programming most of our after-school uh, workers it's not a drop-in center we are intentional about our programming a lot of them are licensed therapists as well um, just because the need is so great with the people that we serve there that uh, uh, we need to be well schooled in many different areas to treat them um, it, it was it was overwhelming what was there and we realized right away that by just opening an after-school and summer program in that community um, we were putting a Band-Aid on an open wound, and this would have done nothing. So um, we uh, started a cultural assessment of the community. Uh, that's when we found that there were five large West African groups in this community, um, as well as taking many parents from that community to our Ohio Avenue Center so they could dream, so they could think what they could potentially have. We ended up tracking or, or marking every Boys and Girls Club, every Y, every Parks and Rec Center, and every Columbus Library um, in the city. There are 74 of those entities. Kimberly Parkway has zero. Um, it, it, there are really are no assets in that community, no basic things that other communities have. So even if you're trying to pull yourself up, even if you're seeking help, you don't have access. And, and Kimberly's unique because of refugee and because of Hamilton and because of the freeway, that they're almost locked. Like, you're not going to run across Hamilton Road to go. I mean, it, they're almost just this locked community. Um, Yet there are no resources there whatsoever. And uh, we did not see that as just, and that's really where we moved from transformation to restoration. Let's remember, this used to be a thriving black community. It is just not anymore. It used to be, and this is about restoring that. Um, it's about working with that community. It's, it's not about putting programs in there and helping people access them. Um, Michael knows this as well as anybody else. By the way, I hope they have you on the zoning commission to help them put the new legislation together. I really, I truly do. I, I, I mean you. that. Um, uh, I, I can't know a better person that, that they need to have at the table. Uh, but it, you're not, people aren't going to be able to move anywhere if they don't have some, I'm not saying this is a handout. I'm not saying that we're trying to, oh, we're trying to help poor people. No, we're not. What we are trying to do is recognize that certain communities truly lack basic resources that all communities should have because they're a part of this city. And to not do that is just not just. Well, Kimberly Parkway certainly is not in the news, except for one instance, I think it was a week, 10 days ago, Kimberly Parkway has been gifted some parkland. That's the first time I saw Kimberly Parkway in the news. You're laughing, not great park plan. No, you know what? I can't tell you. That morning, I think I got like eight or nine emails from, I, look, we've been pounding the pavement with this for like the last five years and, and saying there's nothing there, there's nothing there, there's nothing there, someone's got to do something. And that day, everybody was sending me this article. It's like, look, there's Kimberly. Look, they mentioned Kimberly. Look. Um, I'm grateful. Hey, I, I don't. I don't care who comes up with it or what, as long as the people we serve get something they didn't have before, 
So what's oh, the I'm thrilled. So what's the difference between Okay, couple areas come to mind. Sullivan the Sullivan corridor received some city funding. I always like to point out that that came after the city caught heat for sending money for the crew stadium. Then we saw funding for Sullivan Avenue. The city's express focus is on Linden. Kimberly Parkway is way over there. What's the difference? I don't, I don't know that it's a desirable area for anyone to make money right now. I don't. Mm. You know, they, they have plans for the fairgrounds. Well, you can't have plans for a fairground and let it continue to have areas around it that aren't uh, uh, very safe um, or healthy. I think that with anything, if you look at Franklinton and just the hilltop, all of it, there is so much going on over that area. Uh, it's not that different than what happened soon after. Look, I was here in the day when the short north was uh, prostitution and drugs. Um, I think many of us can remember that. Uh, well, you can't have that in between downtown and the university. It's very purposeful and intentional why they targeted that area. Well, it only made sense to then go to Italian Village. It only made sense to go to Wyland Park. It only made sense uh, because then people can then invest in that and, and get their investments to grow. And there's... A, there's nothing like that in the Kimberly Parkway right now um, that, that is drawing people. I'm curious as to uh, Michael's perspective on that because he's been heavily involved in these things. You know, the issue is that the challenges of neighborhoods that struggle, it moves around relatively quickly. And in a community like uh, Columbus, where you have a lot of growth, uh, you have communities that were on the decline who turn and become gentrified. And then you have places that were middle class, like, you know, the Kimberly Parkway area that now uh, struggle. And so if you are, you know, the city and you're wanting to do place-based investment, um, that does move around relatively quickly. But I think there's a core issue here that I want to uh, address, and that is um, you will rarely ever meet somebody who lives in any neighborhood who doesn't care about something. Too often, middle-class institutions, funders, nonprofits, foundations, city government, we are often asking people their opinions, but not really what they care about. Everybody has an opinion about something. What they care about is usually a much, much shorter list. Mm. And I believe you organize around what people care about versus what their opinions are. And I'll give a specific example. Most people don't like, you know, litter, trash, and graffiti in their neighborhood because it's unsightly. And so if you ask people their opinion on that issue, everyone's going to say, I don't like it and I want it to be gone. And then a middle-class construct will organize a litter cleanup and five people show up and then they'll shake their heads and see, see, people in this community don't really care about wanting to make it cleaner. Well, that's not really a fair assessment because you didn't really ask somebody, hey, Jack, are you interested in grabbing a litter grabber in a trash bag and walking the streets to pick this trash up. You might have an interest in mentoring kids or reading or some other way that you want to activate what you care about. What I think we need to be doing in lots of these places is really having authentic conversations, understanding what people care about. You organize around what they care about, and that's normally what gets done. That might not be that same uh, logic model that an investor starts out with, but I also want to raise the point about whether it's Sullivan Avenue or Linden or Kimberly Parkway, you know, often the logic model of how we want to address change is going to be education, employment, health, housing, safety, resident engagement, positive youth development. You can't see any of that work 
right? You can't see Dwayne's work with youth, whether it's on the Ohio Avenue Center on the Near East Side or it's out on Kimberly Parkway. You can manifest that with data on academic achievement. You could uh, measure it whether kids are getting in trouble with the criminal justice system. But too often we go into neighborhoods and we decide our, our middle class models of whether or not we think this is a good neighborhood or not a good neighborhood based on the real estate. And at the end of it, yeah. we need to create communities that people have an emotional connection to space. If we don't build cities that people care about, we will not build cities that people will fight for. And I think one of the ways you build a city that people fight for is you organize around what they care about. That could be sports, that could be quilting, it could be organic gardening. You need to get to crime and housing and job opportunities as well, but you need to give the folks who live in that community a way to organize resources, volunteerism, people power around what they care about. And that takes a lot more uh, hand-holding and it takes a lot more engagement, which is why the nonprofit sector and organizations like Duane's is so effective at doing that. You know, one of the things with that too, and I, I truly appreciate Michael talking about uh, you, you it's what people care about. It really is. It is. You can tell them all you want, like like litter's bad. Um, that doesn't change litter. It, it you know, I, I, I've talked about this. Actually, I kind of mentioned the other day in a training uh, 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 with United Way. It's the cognitive, the emotional behavior. It's from a therapeutic standpoint. It's how you think, how you feel, how you act. So you can have all the knowledge in the world. That doesn't make you sensitive to anything. And if your knowledge doesn't alone make action. It, it, those are just facts, and, and, and facts don't really live. They're, they're facts. Um, if people are going to be motivated to do things, it really takes an emotional of investment of some kind um, because, in a sense, they're sacrificing their time or, or their effort or their energy towards that, and that's behavioral. That's not directed just by facts. You can't, well, we all, everybody's going to say poverty's bad. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean you care about it. Mm -hmm. My whole thing is we have to change kind of that. You know, we. Look, we have got now 21 nonprofit partners who are going to join us in the Kimberly effort. I don't, I, you know, I, there's many things we don't do. We don't do jobs. We don't do uh, 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 food. We don't do housing. We don't do senior services. We don't do medical. We don't, but we have 21 nonprofits that do and who have agreed and signed on to be a part uh, of this initiative to address housing, to address food, uh, to address education, to address senior services, to address cultural activities, to address safety. You know, one of the moms we talked to when we first moved in there said, my son was killed in these streets 10 years ago. I've been fighting with everyone to try to get something here, and 10 years later, we have nothing. And then she actually said, are you folks angels? You know, those types of narratives have to change. They truly have to change because it shouldn't take an angel to give somebody, any community, basic needs. There's nothing angelic about that. It's actually shameful that they don't have them. You know, one of the things I, that really struck me with what you just said, Dwayne, is the whole issue of this woman who, you know, lives in a community that is has not delivered on the expectation of uh, living in a in, in a good community, and the cost she paid for that is to lose a child due to violence. Uh, but you use the word fight, and I think everybody in a neighborhood that is changing, however it's changing, the question is, um, are you going to fight or are you, you going to have flight? Uh, and if you honestly live in 
lots of places in Ohio where the metropolitan population is declining, the city population is declining, and your neighborhood is on the decline, you really might not have the sense that it's going to really turn around and get better. And you see a lot of people who uh, pick the option of flight, right? Um, you're going to pick up and move out because it is instinctive to want to move to a neighborhood that is cleaner, nicer, safer, and is going to deliver greater uh, opportunities for employment and a good life for your children in schools. Um, you know, that woman decided to stay and fight, and it cost dearly. And so the question is, what are we, and that is a very inclusive we as a metropolitan region, are we giving people like her the tools so she can stay and fight and feel supported? and work against, you know, really global <laughs> forces. I mean, to uh, your point, was it four large Western African groups in that area? Five. There's five. five. Um, you know, just being a connector with all of those folks is huge. But are we giving folks a culturally competent tool so when they are, right, part of the global diaspora that is playing out on the streets of Columbus, where in 10 or 15 years, a neighborhood could be all one ethnic and racial group, and 10 or 15 years later, it looks very different. Um, are we making sure that the people who now live in that neighborhood have the tools to address those kinds of social and economic forces? You know, the other thing that I think that's happening with this, and I love your whole uh, fight and flight uh, 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 analogy there, but the third part of it is a lot of people then just freeze. Uh, yeah. And just become apathetic because mm -hmm. they don't see anything that's going to happen or uh, they don't have the energy uh, or the means to move somewhere else. And so they just give up caring. And and, and that's easy to do. Uh, another one of the mother's groups, uh, one of the first groups we took out said, I can't believe you're willing to do that for us. Think about that statement. I can't. That means she already embraced the fact that nobody's willing to do mm -hmm. anything, that nobody really cares. I say she's not looking at flight. She's not looking at fighting. She's looking, she's apathetic now because mm -hmm. this has been the norm so long that she does, maybe she was fighting before and just doesn't have the energy anymore. When you lack any resources or any assets in a, in a community, you can't put it on that individual to shoulder all of that responsibility. You cannot. We have a responsibility as a community to assist each other in their growth and development. But... It seems to me that the rock you have to push is that not everybody has that open-minded, egalitarian viewpoint that you and Michael do. It, I, being, maybe because we're, Gonzo and I are lawyers, we're naturally skeptical, I would think that a lot of people say, that's over there, I'm doing just fine over here. The first thing I'd say, that's great that you can say that because you're over here. Why don't mm. you be over there? Well, that's, and, and that's, that, don't that's, you think that's the problem you face? Right, that's largely? going to change an awful lot. I mean, when we look at, at just basic empathy, which was one of the things that, that I was asked to speak to a, a group about this past week, um, it's, it's, it's the reason why we build empathy into our programming and our after-school programs. It's why uh, impoverished kids make blankets for kids at Children's Hospital. It's why they put hats and gloves in bags and hang them in homeless areas because it doesn't matter what means you are, you can always give, and people matter. Um, we, we, uh, people do, ma they're individuals. We don't, this isn't a business. They're not objects, they're not widgets. The bottom line is not profit. It's about human lives. So an, another perspective that you just gave me is you know, there's empathy and there's apathy. 
And we worked in a community at United Way that had about 300, a little more than 300 uh, uh, households. And a comprehensive survey was done to really get to the core issue about, you know, what do people care about? What are they willing to kind of work on? Uh, we deployed the survey and uh, 20% of the people who lived in the community completed the survey. Mm-hmm. And leaders in the community were like, oh, you know, they were so crushed. They said, look at that, 80% of the people who live in this neighborhood don't even care enough to respond to the survey. And I said, do you have any idea how amazing a 20% oh, yeah. return rate is That's on the survey? That's what I thought. I thought right? wow. I mean, you know, normally you're, you're lucky if you're getting, you know, 3 or 4%, right? And so I said, you know, and this was all about perspective. Like if you're not in the space of survey design and survey response, you might uh, go through that experience. And your interpretation was 80% of the people uh, aren't interested in doing things in the neighborhood. Well, the other reality is, well, that meant you know, 60 people in the community are willing to give their time and talent and treasure to do things. And that's a lot of people. And sometimes these things are contagious, right? If you could get 60 people who are active and connected, it, it, it also grows. I also think there is something to be said for, you know, do you have a community whose communal psychology is a place of victimization are they stuck looking at the pains of the past and therefore it could lead to flight or apathy? Or do you have the cultural identity of a community that's focused on the future? I can show you neighborhoods in Columbus that look very similar demographically on paper. Both of them might uh, struggle significantly when you look at income and home ownership rates and violence, but the collective view of that neighborhood uh, might be very different. So a specific example, there was a OSU PhD student who was uh, walking streets of the Near East Side and in Wyland Park, stopping in, uh, just having conversations with teenagers. And they were very surprised how many youth on the Near East Side would routinely bring up what the construction of the highway did to the neighborhood, what public housing did to the neighborhood, right? There's a lot of the historical, large, uh, traditional, conventional public housing, Sawyer Manor, Trevitt Heights, Sawyer Towers, uh, Poindexter Village. Um, Wyland Park didn't have those. It had more of a scattered site. But it was interesting where they said, you know, youth on the Near East Side talk a lot about these pain points of the past. Uh, But when you're over in Wyland Park, which is near Ohio State and near High Street and has Summit and North Forth, which are these very busy corridors with lots of traffic and people always coming in and out of the neighborhood, said that, you know, the youth were very much focused on, you know, the future. And some of that was a lot more, at least at this time, there's a lot more building going on. Like, you know, in the Wineland Park, you just see a lot of how a neighborhood like Wineland Park is being pulled into, right, the whole uh, progress of the North Side. And so, it is important to understand that entire communities can take on a psychological identity of either feeling overwhelmed or feeling aspirational about the future. And that's and that's something that I think the nonprofit sector, more than any other sector, is able to harness. Because in many ways, I think of the health and human service sector, the nonprofit sector, that is the mortar between the bricks, right? Architects design buildings, engineers make them stand up, city planners are about how do those buildings make you feel? Well. The nonprofit sector is that social mortar between the bricks. It's about really connecting people to each other. So there's not empathy. So people have the tools to fight. Uh, that 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 cultural uh, psychology is not one of victimization, but it is one that's focused on the aspirations and hopes of the future. 
And that even happens. We've seen it during the pandemic. It's one of the reasons why particularly our Kimberly property needed to become a vaccination site. It's like, look, first off, when the vaccination first came out, these people are not taking five buses or however it would have taken to get to the fairgrounds to get vaccinated. Come on. That's just they have child care issues. There's many things about that. And plus, they don't trust you. It's like we have to be a site. I mean, and we were every Thursday and people were coming and getting vaccinated um, because these communities trust certain social service agencies. Um, even if you think that social, this is one of the problems too. Sometimes we go into communities think, oh, they need this, they need that. Uh, let's bring in this social service aid and ignore one that's already there because you may not think it fun. That community still trusts them. I don't care what you think about them. I care what the community thinks about them. And if you think you're going to come in and try to push them aside and take over, you have now alienated not only that 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 service, but all those people who trust that service. So we've got to get smarter than that. I, it, at times, I think we, got to, we do things to communities instead of with them. Um, and we have to change that. When I listen to both of you talk, it uh, just you know, from the 30,000 foot level, we've got pockets of the community of Columbus, which is a very, very large city that we're talking about. Kimberly Parkway, for example, just one pocket. Then you have um, the shifts in desirability that occur. And then we take the census, which tells us that a lot more people are moving into this area. And then Dwayne, you talk about all the assets that you'd like to bring to this community. Is there a danger in your mind that you make it more desirable and displace the very people you're trying to help? Uh, this is one of the things where the housing of all the complexes right now probably won't allow that to happen. <laughs> it's, a, uh, it's funny, EJ from, from Habitat Humanity, he and I, when we were talking, uh, they're one of the folks that he said, Dwayne, I'm really busy right now, but we're tied up the next two years, but after that we'll come help rebuild. And I'm thinking, ooh, <laughs> that may now start to change the dynamics of this community. Um, you know, I, I, I will honestly say I don't have all the answers to that. I, you know, at this point, you know, like infant mortality, I don't have time to wait to find the answers to everything. Um, I, I've got to intervene now. I, incidentally, just to let you know, we started bringing in a mobile unit three years ago uh, from Ohio Health. We put in a $7,000 electrical unit to plug their uh, semi in because we couldn't wait for a new center. Uh, to address the infant mortality rate. It's been full every day that they have been there. Um, that just also demonstrates the need for basic medical care in some of these communities of need. It sounds like, the, uh, you know, Gonzo's question is really focused on, are you worried about making things too good and, and new people coming in? That, I would love to have that problem. Yeah, I, I was going to say. As long as the people who live there profit from it and not somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, adding to that, it's important to... Um, frame, 50% of the growth of Central Ohio is due to births minus deaths. Regardless of what's happening in the economy, the Columbus Metro is going to grow because we have relatively young families. And there are about seven larger U.S. metros in the country where more people pass away every year than are being born. That includes Youngstown, Warren, Buffalo, Pittsburgh. Cleveland Metro is soon to get there, right? I think the median age difference between Cuyahoga County and Franklin County, uh, folks in Franklin County are like seven years younger on average. So we just have a much higher percentage of people in childbearing years. 
Another 26% of our population growth is international. That's coming from a very diverse uh, group of people. That's driven by people living because of you know war, famine, persecution. It's also people coming here for jobs at Nationwide and Cardinal Health and the Ohio State University. And then the smallest part of our metro growth, 24%, are American-born people who move here from another part of the country. That's almost entirely coming from nearby cities, Dayton, Cleveland, Akron, Detroit, Youngstown. And so when people say, hey, Columbus is really growing, we have to stop people from moving here. Well, you know, there are people moving here from nearby cities that aren't doing very well. They're moving here for education and they're moving here for employment. But there's lots of reasons why we're going to continue to grow. There's an unintended consequence of our growth, and that is if our metropolitan region is to add a million more people in the next 30 years or so, and if 15% of the population is in poverty and 15% are the working poor, that means in the next 30 years, that's 300,000 more people who are economically struggling that are going to live here in 30 years than live here today. Where are they going to live? And the reality is it's where you know Dwayne's new center is in Kimberly Parkway. It's places like Northland. Uh, Eastland area, really the west side from Hilltop all the way out to Hollywood Casino. We are now seeing neighborhoods, and this is new for our region, neighborhoods that are growing while they are economically declining and they are growing but not adding housing. So the reality is, as the region grows, the difficulty, and this is how we open the conversation, there are some neighborhoods that thrive and some neighborhoods that you know tend to uh, struggle. We're going to see larger areas that struggle because the metropolitan region's just going to have more people who struggle because we have more people. And that means places like Kimberly Parkway and portions of Northland are going to have to, in many ways, bear the brunt of accommodating more people who struggle economically. And what does that look like in those neighborhoods? More and more people living in the existing housing as people are living doubled up or larger families are moving in who culturally look very different than the families they are often replacing. Mm -hmm. We're running out of time, and I want you to know I've tried to distill everything you've said to just a few words, but here's what I have. In terms of the communities that we're talking about, the ones that are at risk, the thing that seems most important is actually engaging those people. And then in terms of the people who live outside those communities, who really have no touch with them, it seems the two important thoughts are one, empathy, and thinking about the future of Columbus. Did I miss anything? Just in terms of sound bites. No, I mean, I actually think there's hope uh, on the horizon. When, when you look at what happened uh, uh, um, after George Floyd and many, and, and many others, people started getting involved outside of themselves. I mean, people put signs in the yard, people marched, uh, uh, people spoke at rallies. This is, I think there is a community here that wants justice for everyone. I, I, this is what they marched for. This is what they put their signs in for, even knowing that it, it may be contrary to what some of their, their neighbors think. It, it was a social justice movement. But I think at times they didn't know what else to do. What do I do beyond the sign? Mm -hmm. What do I do beyond? And if we look at the people, uh, 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 people give differently now. They support things differently, and, and particularly younger populations. They need a connection. They need something tangible. They, they need something they can feel and touch, uh, um, uh, which is totally different. But I am totally encouraged by the fact that I think there are a lot of people out there um, who know the cognitive, they know the emotional, they're ready for the behavioral, they just want the opportunity. And, and Jack, I think I would uh, add 
fight or flight is very real for mm. people. Right. And are we providing this, the tools that people need so more people can pick fight and fight for their community? Um, asset-based community development, organizing around what people care about, never fails. And our region and our city has never been more diverse. Uh, we've never been more influential on the state or political stage with regard to, you know, Columbus and uh, what it represents. And we have not been growing uh, more quickly than we have now in 70 years. Um, and that growth provides incredible opportunity. And are we harnessing that opportunity for the greatest good? Thanks. Michael, uh, Dwayne, um, your passion, your enthusiasm, your optimism, it's infectious. And uh, we appreciate you uh, coming out, uh, talking. I hope that our audience will uh, support uh, your endeavors. And uh, good luck to both of you in the future. Thank you. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure to be here. We're running a brief survey for our listeners and would love to hear from you. So go to Columbus, excuse me, go to lawyeruppolumbus.com forward slash survey and give us your input. It takes two minutes, literally. We'll be back in a few weeks with another important legal or social justice issue, and we hope you join us so it's not just us, but all of us talking about justice. So long.